Spider-Man issue 129, but the Holy Bible of comic books is Amazing Fantasy issue 15, Amazing Spider-Man issue 1 through 38, and Annuals 1 and 2. These issues, produced by the creative team of Stan Lee and Steve Ditko, are hands down my favourite comic book series ever. From the very beginning, there was something about Spider-Man that resonated with me when I first discovered these comics at an early age. Arguably, my interest in comics span out of Spider-Man. Whilst the Marvel Star Wars material was also an early obsession, Spider-Man was the character I identified with, wanted to be, and strove to emulate. My first experience of Spider-Man was the 1967 animated series. My nan tells me the tale of how I would watch that cartoon in my high chair, no more than three years of age, terrified yet transfixed by the masked man before me. Whilst I don't recall exactly what terrified me as a wee nipper, I can only assume that the full-face mask and creepy stylings of the costume played a part. It's hard to imagine nowadays where Spider-Man is on everything from underpants to ice lollies, but back in the day, Spider-Man's costume, designed by co-creator Steve Ditko, was creepy. It was a full-face mask, an incredible rarity back when superheroes either sported a slender domino mask or cowl that showed off their manly and chiselled jaw. Some didn't wear a mask at all. The upshot of this was that superheroes all looked like upright members of the community, confident and appealing. Spider-Man didn't look like that. In addition to having no features whatsoever visible, even his eyes were hidden by one-way lenses, he did not sport the usual design aesthetic of other heroes. There were no trunks, no utility belt, no cape. There were those freaky underarm webbing things that looked odd, and he didn't stand legs akimbo, hands on hips, jaw jutting out manfully. He swung about town, he crept around places, he lurked in the shadows, afraid to step into the light. He was, in short, altogether ooky. I say none of these things to disparage the heroes that were all of these things, merely to emphasise how different Spider-Man would have been to the reading public, a reading public that included me. I was fascinated by the look of Spider-Man, but as I read the strips, I became equally fascinated by the character. I was exposed to Spider-Man via a number of different sources. In addition to the cartoons, my stepdad brought boxes of UK comics with him when he moved in with my mum. These dusty cardboard carriers, which made me sneeze whenever I opened them, contained treasures heretofore unseen. Old issues of Mighty World of Marvel and Spider-Man Comics Weekly detailed in a magnificent blend of colour, monochrome and two-tone, the adventures of the Incredible Hulk, the Fantastic Four, the Mighty Thor and the strip that quickly became my favourite, The Amazing Spider-Man. These strips, edited and chopped up as they were for UK kids' consumption, fired my imagination. This will have been in the early 1980s, and at this time there were other avenues to find these adventures. Marvel has never been shy about plundering their own back catalogue for material. In addition to these faded periodicals, I discovered that Marvel UK were publishing the Spider-Man Pocket Book. This was an A5 size publication with 52 pages and published in stark black and white, available monthly from all good newsagents for the low, low price of 15p. For those in less salubrious neighbourhoods, bad newsagents also stocked these magazines. In each issue were two completely Ditko Spider-Man stories. As with my dad's collection, there were gaps, and I didn't have every pocketbook, but these filled in a number of holes in the narrative. 
I first read Amazing Spider-Man issue 1 in these pocketbooks, as oddly, they skipped over Amazing Fantasy issue 15. Further completing the puzzle was the US comic series Marvel Tales, which in 1982 began a comprehensive and chronological reprinting of the early Spider-Man stories from the beginning. For the first time, I got to experience these issues as the readers of the 60s would have experienced them, monthly and in full colour. To this day, these are my favourite Spider-Man stories, and amongst my favourite comics generally. These comics have never been bettered in terms of their power to surprise and their ability to be daring and different. They contain everything the reader needs to know about the character, and, for early Marvel, they are remarkably consistent and well thought out. Somebody, be it Lee or Ditko, was obviously thinking this stuff through. I say Lee or Ditko there because I am not differentiating between the two, nor am I about to decide who did what, although it is occasionally obvious where Stan doesn't understand what Ditko was going for or doesn't understand the art. Nevertheless, Stan Lee and Steve Ditko produced these comics. There may have been periods of time where Ditko did more. There may have been periods of time where Lee did more, but the bottom line is both contributed to make this character what he is. Without either man, we may have a Spider-Man, but we don't have this Spider-Man. Which leads us to this and upcoming episodes of the Palace of Glittering Delights, which, despite its remit to cover anything, for a few weeks will focus on Spider-Man, as I attempt to explain why these comics and why this character. I will examine every issue of the Lee Ditko run in an effort to shine a spotlight on work I think is some of the best comics has to offer. I hope to show why every attempt to reboot Spider-Man by Marvel in later years has been doomed to failure, because they got it right the first time. More than any other character in the Marvel age of comics, Spider-Man achieved greatness from the get-go, seemingly by having some advanced thought put into the character and the world he inhabited. Now granted, Lee and Ditko were still making it up as they went along, but there is a cohesiveness to early Spider-Man strips that the Fantastic Four and the Hulk both lack. The story of Spider-Man is the story of Peter Parker, and it begins in Amazing Fantasy issue 15, cover dated August 1962. The cover by Jack Kirby, who in another reality could have been Spidey's co-creator, was inked by Ditko, and is one of the most popular images in comics pop culture. Spider-Man swings across New York, a scared-looking man under his arms, proclaiming, Though the world may mock Peter Parker, the timid teenager, it will soon marvel at the awesome might of Spider-Man. What's remarkable about this cover, taken in isolation, is that it makes no effort to introduce Spider-Man as a hero. The dialogue, pose, and look of the character could still go either way. In this story, we are introduced to a lot of the elements that make up the Spider-Man legend. We are instantly shown that Peter Parker, a shy, retiring kid, is an outcast. Ditko lays this first page out wonderfully to highlight that Peter stands apart from his peers. The other kids, including one named Flash Thompson, stand clustered together, discussing the upcoming dance. Rather laughably nowadays, they mention that Peter wouldn't know a cha-cha from a waltz, something Peter probably has in common with a good number of kids today. At the time... I presume that this was a big deal. A blonde girl calls Peter a professional wallflower, a dated term, no doubt, but the emotion of the piece is still potent. Peter is a loner and clearly bullied by his peers, an emotion that is still carried across by the sheer power of the art. Witness Peter's body language, shoulders slumped, head down, looking dejected, versus the open and extravagant gestures of his peers. 
They point at Peter. They have open faces and smile. But it is the smiles of predators licking their lips in preparation of attacking their prey. Peter wears a vest top and large glasses. And whilst apart from the conversation, it's patently aware that they are laughing at him. It is not the opening of a standard superhero comic. But that's because this wasn't a superhero comic. Amazing Fantasy was an anthology title, focusing on monster stories and O. Henry-style twist-in-the-tale science fiction tales, and this initial Spider-Man strip is in that vein. It's but one of the ways that Spider-Man was different. The beginning of the story fills in some blanks. Peter is loved by his Aunt May and Uncle Ben, with whom he lives with no explanation. As a kid, this never bothered me. I lived with my grandparents for a lot of my early life, and during my daily life I didn't stop what I was doing and dump some exposition on people to explain why. It was one of the ways I identified with Peter. He was also an A-class student, and, bless the lad, hadn't given up. He still asks a girl named Sally out, and later asks if any of the classmates want to accompany him to the science exhibit. He is rebuffed rather cruelly by the girls, but he's still trying. What's remarkable about this scene is how much of it plays in later. The blonde girl, unnamed here, will later be called Liz Allen, and the brunette, Sally, will also appear in future issues. Flash Thompson will become a major player. Whilst no one really thought the series would go beyond this first instalment, that these characters all come back shows that somebody was giving some thought to this. It also plays into Peter's geek nature. He isn't interested in dances and boring teenage stuff. He likes science first. This moment is key to Peter's character. Many later iterations, some very good ones, change this very important concept, that Peter is alone and attends the science fair willingly, for fun. Having Peter be with a friend, or worse still, be on a school trip, completely misses the point of the moment. It's integral to Peter's character that he attends the exhibit on his own, for fun, but also so that the accident about to occur can happen without drawing undue attention to itself. The science exhibit where Peter is bitten by the radioactive spider is very low-key. The radiology experiment is open, there are no barriers or shielding, and Peter's reaction to the fateful moment is to feel woozy. Again, later creators miss the point of this scene completely and make it out to be this huge deal. It isn't and shouldn't be. It's a simple blink-and-you-miss-it moment that changes Peter's life forever. There's no big gesture. Peter isn't being heroic here or attracting attention to himself. And nobody witnesses the event. There's something very realistic in that Peter's life is irrevocably altered by a small, mundane event. Ditko doesn't go for melodrama. There is no scene of the spider biting Peter's hand in close-up. No moment of Peter shrieking as it does so. It's a quiet, intimate moment. And a perfect example of the creators knowing when to highlight a scene and when not to. It should also be pointed out that the captions make it very clear the spider dies as a result of its exposure to the radioactive rays, something later creators apparently didn't bother paying attention to. Those later creators, and some fans, have also made a big deal out of Peter's line, Someday I'll show them. They'll be sorry. Sorry they laughed at me as being in some way indicative that in another universe Peter would have been a supervillain. Nothing in this story points to that. Peter is upset and a loner, but his first instinct upon receiving his superpowers isn't to go and try and rob a bank, but to make money legally. Peter may have been a tad emotional in this story, but a lifetime of being bullied will do that to you. Peter rather quickly realises his good fortune, but unlike a lot of Marvel U scientists, he tests his theory first. 
The wrestling scene is great with Peter disguising his face for a very real reason. He doesn't want to look like an idiot if this doesn't work, but this inadvertently gives him an angle. A masked persona hides who he really is. Again, this undermines that this is a superhero story. Peter fashions his costume not to go out and make the world a better place or to serve mankind, but because it is colourful and attractive to audiences. He makes his costume to be an entertainer. He conjures up the name Spider-Man, no hyphen, and he becomes an immediate hit on the TV circuit. There are a couple of things to discuss here from how Stan and Steve were quick to realise that the medium of television would be interested in a reality style like Spider-Man and that such a character would be an immediate hit. The attention goes to Peter's head and he starts acting like an arrogant ass. He witnesses a policeman chasing a thief and simply steps aside. This is great storytelling all within this 11 page format. And whilst we don't really get the page count to expand on this, there is enough story with dialogue like, from now on I look after number one, and the rest of the world can go hang for all I care. This is how a lot of us would act. The emotion of the piece rings true some 50 odd years later. And this is the point. The story works. The audience is very much on Peter's side here. We have been treated to a character that was obviously not being raised by his parents, that he's bullied at school and is a loner. He's been dealt a lucky hand and we support and identify with his choices. You can quibble that a 15-year-old wouldn't know how to make a costume or build web shooters, but that, to me, is to miss the whole point of the story. In 11 short pages with minimal dialogue and scenes, Peter is an engaging and interesting, if not necessarily likeable, person. We then get to the turning point in the story. Peter returns home one night to find his Uncle Ben has been killed. You all know the story. Peter explodes with anger, takes off after the burglar, and quickly discovers that he is the man that he let go earlier. Think about this for a second. You find out, as a 15-year-old kid, that you are indirectly responsible for the death of your surrogate father. That's powerful stuff. The fact that the viewers of the 2002 Spider-Man film, who were unfamiliar with the origin, still gasped at this reveal, demonstrates its power. It's why comics fans constantly whining about the not doing the origin again are totally missing why this story resonates and why it's important to the character. They also seem to forget they know the story. The rest of the world doesn't. For me, they can do this origin however many times they like, as long as they get it right. After all, nobody seems to complain about how many times we've seen Bruce Wayne's parents being shot, or how many times we've witnessed Krypton explode. There are certain elements that date this, but these are window dressing. Who cares that Peter can build web shooters? Who gives a toss that the costume is professionally stitched? Who cares whether the spider is genetically modified or radioactive? The things that make the story work, the characters, the drama, the writing, and in comics, the art, all still resonate. Ditko's odd-looking people are a stark contrast to the square-jawed heroes of other books at the time. Even compared to Jack Kirby, Ditko's characters looked like real people. If this were a TV show, it'd be filmed in Canada instead of being populated by L.A. mannequins. True, it's a tad rough in places, and it's thematically darker than perhaps you remember it being, but unlike a lot of other Marvel heroes, Ditko would nail the Spider-Man look within two issues of his regular book, a claim that cannot be made by other Marvel product of the time. What's great about reading Amazing Fantasy 15, though, is how well it still holds up on a gut and emotional level, whilst it is undeniably set in the 1960s. 
There is enough here to suggest more adventures are coming, and when you look back on it, the fact that Flash Thompson and other characters are already in place seems like there was some indication that it was going to continue. Spider-Man's powers, likewise, have had some thought behind them. He has the increased strength and agility, although his spider-sense is not mentioned in this opening story. The webs are artificial, because presumably Leo Ditko didn't want Peter shitting webs out of his arse. It's a taut tale, but even in their wildest dreams, Lee and Ditko couldn't have imagined what they had created. Amazing Fantasy issue 15 goes to great pains to point out that Spider-Man will become a regular next issue, and that the name of the magazine has been changed from Amazing Adult Fantasy. Readers had every reason to believe that Amazing Fantasy issue 16 would be on the stand soon. It was not to be. Amazing Fantasy issue 15 was the last issue of the book. Spider-Man, however, proved to be a popular strip, and a little over six months later, Amazing Spider-Man issue 1, cover dated March 1963, debuted. Like most Marvel series of this time, Amazing Spider-Man issue 1 had two stories. The cover is brilliant. Spider-Man is trapped in a perspex tube as the Fantastic Four wave and fly around him. It has become moderately iconic in its own right, even if Ditko isn't perhaps the best artist in the world for the thing, who here does look like oatmeal. The first story, which is simply entitled Freak Public Menace, concerns Spider-Man rescuing John Jameson, who is apparently the son of the Daily Bugle publisher J. Jonah Jameson, in his first appearance. John Jameson is an astronaut, and his space shuttle breaks, which is rather careless of him. It's up to Spidey to save the day. This is an atypical Spider-Man adventure, and is not a prime example for my argument that Lee and Ditko had Spider-Man pretty much pegged from the get-go. For one thing, this story isn't really a Spider-Man story. Rescuing broken space shuttles is more of a job for Superman or the Fantastic Four. And while Spidey acquits himself admirably, this isn't really his ballywick. Obviously, Lee and Ditko were still trying stuff out here, but most of the elements that made Spider-Man different in Amazing Fantasy XV aren't in this inaugural issue. For example, the origin recap skips the rather pivotal revelation that Peter was semi-responsible for Uncle Ben's death, although we do learn that May witnessed Ben's murder. In addition, Midtown High School is only seen in two panels, although there is a lovely irony here. Peter is finally asked to go out with the class as a group, but has to decline as they're all going to watch a taping of Spider-Man's TV show. Peter considers turning to crime to help out with the family finances, but again, putting lie to the notion that Peter was but one small step away from being a master criminal, he tosses the idea away quickly, stating that he could never become a thief. Instead, he goes back to showbiz, but has trouble cashing checks under the name Spider-Man. He is then the subject of J. Jonah Jameson's ire for the traditional no-good reason. Jameson launches a scathing attack on Spider-Man, firstly for taking the law into his own hands, and secondly for being a danger to children. Jameson wouldn't be the first person to take that think-about-the-children tack when trying to destroy something. The real reason Jameson seems to tackle Spider-Man in this story is simply to drum up some publicity for his son's shuttle launch. The humanity of the character is still present, though. Peter witnesses May pawning her jewellery, and Peter is so gung-ho to clear his name, he thinks everything is going to be okay after saving John Jameson, believing that Jonah will now become a Spider-Man booster. Sadly, that's not to be, and the ending is a melancholy one, with Peter wondering if his receiving these powers was more curse than blessing. It's not that this first story doesn't have its plus points. 
From an artistic point of view, Ditko's handling of the space shuttle sequences are very snappy and fast-paced, and he manages to achieve a sense of danger admirably. However, without many of the elements that make up a great Spider-Man story, the Midtown High School hijinks, the humour, the supporting cast, etc., this is a minor Spider-Man adventure, and not one of the better ones. Perhaps Lee and Ditko would learn from this story and lighten Peter up in subsequent issues, as Peter is very downbeat and highly strung in this issue, with none of the smart-ass comebacks or snappy patter we associate with Spider-Man. Adding a touch of levity was necessary, even if Lee nails the heightened emotions of being a teenager. There's a couple of unintentional chuckles as well, mostly provided by the opening scene. The story picks up with Peter tearing off his costume in anger and hurling it across his bedroom as if he's just returned from stopping the burglar. The implication here being that we are picking up immediately in the aftermath of Amazing Fantasy 15. However, as he goes downstairs, Aunt May is fending off the landlord who's just popped round for his money. Either this landlord is a real bastard and he's hitting May up for cash on the very night her husband was shot and killed in front of her, or this is sometime later but the strip hasn't quite mastered depicting the passage of time yet. To be fair, Lee wouldn't get any better at this, as proven by the wonderful comics trope of newspapers being able to publish their next editions within minutes of a story breaking, which is never not hysterical. The second story is actually two stories in one. The first has Peter decide that he can make some cash working for the FF, so he drops by and basically owns them in a fight. Even the Thing notes how strong Spider-Man is, and wonders how that will translate when he's older. This seemed very much to me that the writer was forgetting that he is privy to information that the characters are not. There's never been any indication the general public believes Spider-Man to be a young man, so what leads the FF to conclude Spider-Man is a teenager? Granted, this is still only issue one, so we're still in uncharted waters, but this seemed like quite a leap for the thing to make. Lee will also have J. Jonah Jameson jump to the same conclusion in the very near future. Five pages in, the story becomes a red menace tale, again more befitting an FF or Hulk story than Spider-Man, and showing that the thought that Lee and Ditko had put into Amazing Fantasy 15 wasn't quite with them in this first issue of the Solo series. In this story, the chameleon, who steals secrets for the Reds, usurps Spider-Man's ID and frames him for the theft of top-secret military plans. Spider-Man must clear his name. The FF material aside, this is even less of a Spider-Man story than the first one. During the course of this adventure, Spider-Man rides a speedboat, prevents top-secret military plans being given to a Russian sub, causes a helicopter to loop the loop, and is subject to humiliation at the hands of a lesser villain like the Chameleon. It reads like an issue of Miami Vice crossed with Mission Impossible rather than Spider-Man. Still, there is another attempt at characterisation when Peter even openly sobs at the injustice of it all, which is reasonable when we consider how young and unseasoned he is. There are still notable moments, such as Spider-Man using his webbing in various and varied ways, and the first use of his Spider-Sense, but this is, again, a lesser adventure. Speaking of Spider-Sense, it doesn't seem to warn him of danger in this story. Initially, the chameleon uses it to get in touch with Spider-Man like it's a radio wave, or like he's Ant-Man or something. And later, Spider-Man uses it to track a helicopter, although the latter could be interpreted as a threat to him on some level. A notable goof also occurs in this issue, in that Peter is referred to as Peter Palmer throughout the entire story. Unlike a similar mistake with Bruce Banner, Stanley never retconned this. It just got altered for reprints and ignored, although other writers would later use it as a source of in-jokes or for comedic effect. 
Amazing Spider-Man number one is not as good as Amazing Fantasy 15, and arguably not a great start to Spider-Man's solo title. There are some attempts to differentiate the strip from the others, but whilst the teen drama is present, it lacks the humour and lightness of touch of what we would come to think of as Spider-Man, and is a little depressing and samey when compared to other Marvel comics. Fortunately, the next issue would be a significant improvement. Behind an excellent Ditko cover and splash page, Spider-Man meets the first adversary that is worthy of it after the relatively innocuous chameleon, the Vulture. The art takes a quantum leap forward here, with all the characters looking the best and most familiar since Amazing Fantasy XV, and this starts with the cover. Ditko draws a magnificently dizzying image with the Vulture and Spider-Man fighting it out over in New York, complete with towering skyscrapers and recognisable water towers. Giving a further idea at the height at which the characters are operating, the cars are merely tiny squares, which just adds to the dizzying sense of scale. The central image has Spider-Man at a disadvantage, plucking at his foe's wings. As the feathers fall, so does he. The background, being a dull grey, works to contrast the hero in red, black and blue and the vulture's green outfit. Although green does seem an odd choice for a vulture. The bald, eagle-nosed villain is smiling at Spidey's misfortune. Two great new Spider-Man thrillers, two great new supervillains, featuring the vulture and Spider-Man is trapped by the terrible tinkerer, runs the cover copy. The sterling artwork continues onto the splash. In this era of comics, splash pages tended to work as alternative covers, and this is no exception, being basically the cover again, but from a different perspective. The art is no less excellent, though, and, if anything, the splash is better than the cover. The vulture is angry here rather than smiling, and Spider-Man clings to the vulture's ankle for dear life, which makes the splash appear more dangerous. Again, the sense of height is achieved through the use of towering skyscrapers, and Ditko nails the vulture straight off, one of his better supervillain designs. In fact, Ditko nails a lot of his designs from the get-go, with only a few exceptions blotting his copybook. The sense of scale is even heightened here by the fact that we don't see any sky or top of the skyscrapers. This battle is taking place entirely between buildings, which somehow makes it feel more threatening. Past the pleasing cover and splash page, the story is a slight but tight little tale, covering a mere 14 pages. Entitled Duel to the Death with the Vulture, which is patently untrue, this is an interesting adventure, featuring evidence both for and against my thesis that Spider-Man, unlike the other Marvel heroes, had a little more thought put into it. The main plot is rather simple. A man who can fly, seemingly through a pair of super-powered wings, has been terrorising the neighbourhood, stealing jewels, bonds and other sundries from out of the hands of his victims. He's apparently been doing this for some time, as he's big news and everybody wants to read about him. Exhibit A against the forethought being put into Spider-Man is present on the very first page of the story proper. J. Jonah Jameson, recurring from the first story in last issue, is here owner of Jameson Publications, with no mention of the Daily Bugle at all. His most prestigious magazine is the glossy Now. It seems to be the magazine of the moment, as all the kids at school are reading it, even Peter Parker, who decides that photos of the vulture would be worth a fortune to a publishing house like Jameson. The scene immediately follows a scene where Jonah says exactly that same thing, and looking at the art one can't help but think that Ditko had in mind that Jonah puts it out there that he'll pay top dollar for such a pick, but something got lost in the scripting stage, as Lee makes it seem that Jonah and Peter come to the same conclusion independently. This makes the story seem a little bit more coincidental than it should be. Coincidence also rears its ugly head again later. The art makes it seem as if Peter 
asks Aunt May for Uncle Ben's old camera as Peter follows his thought processes through. But Lee has this be yet another massive coincidence that May just happens to give Peter this camera just as he needs it for the plot. These are simple goofs that could easily have been fixed with but a few minor changes to the dialogue and they would have made the story seem more organic than there being two massive coincidences on the first page. The Vulture then boasts about his newest conquests and starts informing both the police and the media of his plans to steal a new shipment of diamonds from under their very noses. This leads to Spider-Man's first confrontation with the Uriel adversary, and the Vulture takes Spider-Man down easily, Spider-Man being too busy faffing around with his camera to pay proper attention. The Vulture traps Spidey in a water tower and flies away. There are a couple of things of note in this scene. One, it's a very clever trap for a spider to be trapped somewhere with lots of water and slippery surfaces. Spiders are forever getting trapped in sinks and baths, and this was the human equivalent. Secondly, Spider-Man escaping is a tour de force for Ditko, and the first time he has trapped Spider-Man in water. It will not be the last. Following this near defeat, though, we have Exhibit A that this has actually been thought through. Following the idea that Peter has web shooters of his own design, somebody probably Ditko, given it's all in the art, has thought to answer the question of what he does when his fluid runs out. Why, he fashions a belt to carry spur cartridges, of course. Already two issues in and we're seeing an evolution of the character, unheard of in previous superhero strips. He also uses his brains to whip something up that will help the next time he meets the Vulture. A satisfying plot beat that sets up the ending and demonstrates that Peter is the thinking man's superhero. Despite the setbacks, Peter manages to take some photos and dutifully delivers them to Jonah, who seems not to be quite the skinflint here as he will be later, as he pays Peter a pretty penny for the pics, enough to pay the rent for a year and still have a wad of cash left over. Peter asks not to be credited and is also evasive about how he gets his pictures, and one would think these demands would make Jonah, an investigative reporter, suspicious, but apparently not. There is also no mention of this being quite a dangerous pastime for a teenager, but back then kids were working at 14, so this is a modern criticism, and as such, we'll pay it no mind. The vulture then strikes again, but with all eyes on the sky, he attacks from the sewers. With that, let's linger for a second on panel 3 of page 10, where Ditko draws the most magnificently stunning sewer ever seen. The water cascades down the walls, making them clammy and slimy. The drains spit the water into pools of gathering goo, and the shading as the vulture banks through the system is glorious. Ditko excelled at the normal, contrasting with the extra normal, and this was something that sold the fantasy even more. These were recognisable places with people that looked real, but living amongst them were these larger-than-life figures. Simply magnificent stuff. The final battle between the Vulture and Spider-Man is fun, if short, but it shows the thought that went into the plotting. The device Peter made earlier comes into play at the end, something that didn't happen in other stories of this type. Witness the number of times Reed Richards pulls something out of his ass to stop the villain of the month. This Vulture story is a long-time favourite. Whilst it's still quite plot-heavy, there is characterisation here, and Spider-Man tackling villains with more realistic motivations, such as the craving of wealth, would become more prevalent as the trip continued. Moving forward, Spider-Man would eschew the more science-fiction-type stories of the FF, or the reds-under-the-bed tales of the Hulk, for more crime-noir, street-level tales. Despite its shortcomings and continuity problems, this feels like a Spider-Man story, even if the truncated nature of the two strips per comics format was a hindrance. 
The uncanny threat of the terrible Tinkerer closes out this issue. And this is where Ditko, at least, starts firing on all cylinders. The art in this chapter is brilliant. Ditko's best work on the strip so far. Spider-Man has never looked better than he does on the splash. Again, a poster-style image that works both to introduce the story and as a semi-cover. In addition, there are a couple of great individual panels. The shot of Spider-Man in the dark with only the red of his costume visible is a wonderful visual. And the final shots of Peter gives us a proper look at this young man, unlike any we've seen before. The story itself is as slight as the first one, more suited to the anthology horror mags than Spider-Man. Although we are so early into the character's history here that we can't really know exactly what a Spider-Man story is yet. Peter Parker is recommended by his tutor to work with Dr. Cobwell, the most famous electronics expert in town. On the way, he picks up a radio Cobwell was having fixed from the Tinkerer's repair shop, but it turns out the Tinkerer is an alien working with other little green men who are trying to do... something. It's never really explained. The aliens are planting secret devices in the radios of prominent citizens, but what these devices do, who the citizens are, why Cobwell is important, or even the end game, other than a vague mention of world conquest, isn't really explored. The story is here to service its twist ending, that the Tinkerer was actually wearing a mask and was also an alien. But this doesn't really make sense, even in the context of the story. Why didn't all the other aliens wear masks? Peter, at the end of the story, is left with the Tinkerer's disguise, and I do wonder if he still has it. I quite like the idea of him using it at Halloween. We will later discover that the Tinkerer is not an alien, and, even more surprisingly, neither were the aliens. As before, whilst the story itself is nothing to write home about, there are some notable moments. For one, we see that Peter's tutors value Peter, and, for the first time, Peter talks back to Flash, taking his insults and cleverly turning them back around, so Flash is the one insulted. If Flash was smart enough to realise that's what was happening. Which he isn't. This is a harbinger of things to come, as Peter not only starts to stand up to Flash, but will gain in confidence as we go forward. The Spider-Sense issue also continues nicely. Peter isn't quite sure what his Spider-Sense does in this story, which not only fits in with the idea that he doesn't actually understand it yet, but also that it developed a little later than his other powers. We also get a cross-section of the web shooters and how they work, and again Peter uses his brains to get out of a problem. Thematically, as in the previous Vulture story, we're dealing with the idea of youth versus age, with both of Spider-Man's adversaries in this issue being much older than he is, and the idea that age doesn't necessarily equal wisdom will come up again and again in Spider-Man. These opening issues were still following the anthology's format of two or more strips per issue, and they feel more like a continuation of Amazing Fantasy in that respect. It's possible they were holdovers from that mag. With the next issue, though, it all changes, and we not only get our first full-length adventure, we're introduced to, arguably, Spider-Man's greatest foe. Ditko creates another excellent cover for issue 3, entitled Versus Dr. Octopus. Spider-Man is held up by his wrists and ankles as a man with tentacles strapped to his waist taunts him. This man tells Spider-Man that the power of Dr. Octopus is far greater than yours. Ditko keeps Octopus mostly in shadow so as to maintain some semblance of surprise, but one wonders why he bothers, given that the name Dr. Octopus appears no less than three times on the cover alone. 
Ignoring the cover copy, it's another example of Ditko nailing a cover design and creating another soon-to-be iconic cover. I can't think of another artist who had a run of such eye-catching and memorable covers straight out of the gate. The Splash goes for a more 3D approach. Dr. Octopus is far away in the frame, allowing the tentacles to take over and move in towards the reader. We are told only on the splash page that the Human Torch guest stars in this issue, something one would have thought would have been on the cover, and rather oddly, Spider-Man is nowhere to be seen on the splash page. The story is actually very similar to the one told in Amazing Fantasy 15. The finest atomic scientist in the world today, Otto Octavius, has invented a device that gives him access to dangerous chemicals whilst working at a safe distance. This metal waistcoat has four extra appendages on it, which Octavius can control via a series of dials on the chest plate. However, a freak accident, or a mistake, it's not made clear, occurs, and Octavius, nicknamed Dr. Octopus by his peers, is nearly killed in an explosion. Rushed to the hospital, Octavius wakens a few days later, only to find that the arms have been grafted to his waist and the excessive amount of radiation have resulted in him being able to control the appendages via mental control. Sadly, the same radiation has also driven the good doctor insane and he quickly sets about taking over the hospital where he is bedded. Spider-Man arrives, having been sent to get pictures of Ark by Jonah, and finds his youthful overconfidence quashed by the erratic and more experienced Doctor. Crushed by the defeat, Spider-Man gives up, until a motivational speech from Johnny Storm, a.k.a. the Human Torch, convinces him to continue on, and, once again, our hero prevails thanks to the use of his brain and a smattering of scientific know-how. This, the first great issue of the series, uses the expanded page count to excellent effect. This is the first time we see Spider-Man being proactive in his approach to prevent crime. And although it could be so that he gets some more pictures and thus makes some more money, it's also a step forward in terms of his character development. Spider-Man has, at this point, evidently been around long enough that the criminal underworld has some fear of him, and he's starting to get cocky, a natural emotion for a 14-year-old boy. Gifted with powers such as these and a pretty good track record so far, it stands to reason that Peter would start getting full of himself, and the first half of the issue takes time to show Peter's overconfidence and set him up for the fall we know is coming. He's even overly confident with Jonah when tasked with getting pictures of Octavius, believing that this will be a cakewalk. Compare these events to the plotting of some other Marvel books at the time, where events seem to be piled upon events with seemingly reckless abandon, and you'll see that these early Spider-Man strips are already showing that some thought has been put into the shape of the story. The extra page count also allows for the setting up of the villains as well, even if Ock is still a bit of a blank slate. We're shown that Octavius is a respected member of the scientific community, even if his peers consider him a tad strange and bequeath him with the nickname Dr. Octopus, but we're not given anything about his background or his personality. Perhaps this is why the film Spider-Man 2 was allowed to get away with grafting so much backstory onto Otto. In the comics, he had none. However, there's no indication that, prior to his accident, Ock wasn't an upstanding member of society. After all, he didn't rise to the position of the world's most renowned atomic scientist by not being gifted. This does leave Ox past a mystery, though, which has allowed other writers to fill in the blanks in later years, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. But it should be pointed out there is no indication from this first appearance that Ock was a raving madman before his accident, which gives the whole story a more tragic edge. When this happened, the world lost a brilliant scientist, perhaps a man on the level of Reed Richards.
Art-wise, this is another triumph. The spider signal makes its dramatic debut in a sequence that sets Spider-Man apart, his preventing a bank robbery. The rest of the Marvel pantheon of this time didn't really bother with this kind of street-level crime, and, as befits Ditko, it's a magnificent opening, moody and dripped in shadow, and also for the first time Spider-Man engages in some banter. It's not really that funny, but it's another indicator that being Spider-Man is bringing Peter out of his shell. Not content with nailing the big action beats, Ditko excels at the smaller moments and individual panels. Shots of a silhouetted arc caught in the explosion and his broken body being lifted out of the debris are nice horrific images. Ditko also changes Ock's face when he discovers the brain injuries affected his mind. As with a lot of Ditko creations, Ock wasn't a handsome man to begin with, but there was an element of geniality to his face that is completely absent following the accident. Adding to the subsection about how Spider-Man's powers work is a lovely scene where the reader is treated to a close-up of how he sticks to walls. I don't wish to belabor the point, lovely listener, but this is further evidence that the mechanics of Spider-Man had been thought through. The first battle has Spider-Man completely outclassed by Dark Ark and leads to a good bitch-slapping from the Doctor. The themes of this issue are becoming apparent overconfidence, as with Amazing Fantasy 50, and quitting when things get hard, as well as man versus science. All are tried and true Spider-Man themes, and all will be visited again. There is also the further integration of the wider Marvel U, which is welcome. Last issue, the Vulture acted as if Spider-Man was the only thing that could stop him, and with Spidey out of the way, he was free and clear, which ignores the other heroes present at the time. Here, the Human Torch is called in to have a go at Ock. From a logical standpoint, Reed would have made more sense, but for the dramatics of this story, Johnny is the better choice. Every now and again, sacrificing logic for drama is perfectly acceptable. The story still has a few flaws, but Lee and Ditko probably didn't expect anally retentive nerds like me would still be picking this stuff apart 50 years later. For example, I wasn't sure exactly why the Daily Bugle would want pictures of Dr. Octopus. He's a news story, yeah, but on a front page level? Granted, we live in a world that is fascinated by Kim Kardashian's arse, so maybe it's not that far-fetched. Secondly, contrary to my point that these plots were thought through, the Human Torch states early in the story that he has been overusing his flame recently, and has thus burnt out. But this is contradicted later when we learn he has been ill, and as a result is weakened. Granted, this could simply be that Johnny didn't want the kids at school to know he was ill, and downplayed his flu. Still, Ock's plan to take over the hospital doesn't seem to have an end game. What did he plan to do with it? In other respects, though, this is the best issue of Spider-Man yet, and the template for how the strip will go in the future. The street-level crime, a science-based villain, Peter uses his brains, and that self-same love of the scientific arts, creates a way to defeat the villain, and learns a lesson in the process. This is the second time Spider-Man's science, know-how, and intelligence have saved the day. Not only a subtle way to get kids to acknowledge the necessity of understanding at least basic-level science theory, but also a humanistic approach. Spider-Man doesn't just punch people, he outthinks or outwits them. At all times we remember that Peter Parker is under the mask, and there is ample time devoted to the Peter Parker side of the equation. Of all the heroes of this time, Spider-Man and Peter Parker informed each other, rather than one being a disguise and the other being the real person. We also start to have more substantial appearances from J. Jonah Jameson, and the interconnectedness of the wider Marvel U in the personage of the Human Torch. Overall, this is the real beginning of the strip. Three issues in, and Lee and Ditko have started to formulate how to tell a Spider-Man story, and what makes them different. 
The final piece of the puzzle is put into place in Amazing Spider-Man issue 4, Nothing Can Stop the Sandman, in which Lee and Ditko take what worked in the previous three issues, blend it together slightly differently, and create the Spider-Man alchemy that will serve them in good stead for the rest of their run. This is no more ably demonstrated than on the splash page, as glorious a piece of 60s pop art as you're liable to find. A literal sandman, a man composed of sand, dominates the central image with two panels in the background split down the middle. On the left, the police firing from behind a blockade, the bullets smashing impotently in the body of the man in a green and striped top and brown slacks. He holds a money bag in one hand and laughs maniacally at the police. This is a man who fears nothing and no one. On the other side of the page, the background is the Midtown High School students cowering as Spider-Man punches Sandman, his arm then trapped in Sandman's body. The Sandman's other arm droops menacingly and his arm has become a sand pile that cascades onto Spider-Man's head. This single image captures the appeal of Spider-Man and the essence of his stories. Crime noir in high school, two sides that should never meet, locked in a perpetual battle. If this were a TV show, it would be my so-called Life Meets LA Confidential. It's such a striking visual, it leaves the actual cover standing in the dirt. The cover, a series of four panels that overly explain the character with superfluous dialogue, is not as visually interesting, whereas the splash page gives us everything we need to know thanks to the sublime imagery. The story opens with Spider-Man spotting some shady types hanging around a jewellery store. He moves in to stop them, but is rebuffed when they say that he is harassing them. A passing cop adds to the situation. Spider-Man realises that by preventing them from robbing the store, he doesn't have any actual proof they were going to rob the store. This is a great bit, showing Spider-Man as over-eager, but also showing the workings of the law for a vigilante. Spider-Man blames Jonah and his anti-Spider-Man tirades, which is a nice touch of continuity. A few issues ago, the underworld quaked in fear over the mere mention of Spider-Man's name, with the vulture actively wary of it, more so than the FF, who the vulture wasn't bothered about. Jonah has essentially neutered Spider-Man, a subtle nod to Jonah's obsession being ultimately harmful and self-serving. Understandably annoyed, Spider-Man visits Jonah's office where he leaves a present for him and thus begins a long history of Spider-Man torturing Jonah in increasingly comedic ways. Upon leaving the bugle, Spider-Man happens across a police shootout and this is where he first encounters the Sandman and, in a similar manner to the last issue, the first confrontation ends with Spider-Man defeated when he accidentally turns his mask. It's some magnificent economical storytelling in that we learn all about the Sandman's powers in six short panels, witnessing him stretch, flex, harden and soften his body with great speed, moves that take Spider-Man by surprise. Still, Spider-Man is forced to flee, and in an example of not terribly good economical storytelling, we get three montages in two pages. The first is an inadvertently hilarious flight of fancy, where Peter, terrified his secret will be exposed, imagines how his life will be ruined should people discover who he is, with Sandman threatening to reveal his identity, which Sandman doesn't and can't possibly know. Just because Sandman's seen his face doesn't mean he knows everything there is to know about Peter Parker, including his name. I can just see his description to the police. Yeah, he was this white skinny kid with a New York accent. There's also a hilarious diatribe from Jonah about having Peter expelled from school, which he couldn't do, to the simply side-splitting image of Aunt May being forced to sell shoelaces for ten cents a pop. 
It's typical of a teenager to be overly melodramatic, but this was so far over the top as to be in orbit. None of this would come to pass simply because Sandman saw Peter's face, and the odds of Sandman simply blundering into Peter's school and seeing him are astronomical, surely. Add to that that Spider-Man hasn't actually done anything illegal, and the police couldn't arrest him. Sure, the FF thought he was wanted by the cops in issue one, but we have seen no reason for this to be. In fact, this entire montage was really only worth it for the images of May Parker selling shoelaces dressed as a hobo. The second montage has the expositional news network, copyright Michael Bailey, relate how the Sandman gained his powers in yet another radioactive explosion. Radioactive explosions and science experiments going awry in major metropolitan areas seem to be a big thing in the Marvel U, and I can see why subsequent creators have attempted to elaborate and expand upon this, sometimes altering the circumstances of the origins. Whilst Peter's accident was one of a kind and relatively low-key, some of these other accidents seem like they were just curless. The third montage is one of those comical 60s TV cop show clip scenes where we see Sandman eluding the police through a variety of cunning ruses. I can just see this being depicted with spinning newspapers and close-up shots of police sirens wailing away, cut to scenes of Sandman shiftily looking around corners and running down alleyways. Whilst all this is happening, Peter tries to repair his mask, all the while moaning that he's no seamstress, despite the fact he managed to make a costume from scratch back in Amazing Fantasy issue 15. This reminds me of the criticisms of the 2002 Sam Raimi movie that Peter was able to make a $10,000 costume, but not invent web shooters. Over at the Bugle, we are treated to Jonah in his undershorts, having received Spider-Man's gift from last night, a nice spread of webbing over his chair that stained his pants in an unfortunate manner. In addition to Jonah, we also have the first appearance of Betty Brant, a person of some importance in the Spider-Man mythos, and over at school, Liz Allen starts the thaw towards Peter, agreeing to go on a date with him. His look with the ladies is already starting to change. Peter, of course, has to beg off from the date with Liz due to needing pictures of Sandman for some money. A few issues ago, Peter had paid the rent for a year, but here he's still scrabbling for cash. This isn't as big an issue as it seems. Sure, Peter's paid the rent for a year, but they still need to eat and pay other bills. Peter also needs to keep buying the ingredients to make web fluid, a conversation without May that I'm sure was very interesting. Oh, Peter, why are you buying all this sticky goo? Maybe he could have generated it. No, we won't go there. The various elements of the story start to come together as Sandman, relentlessly pursued by the police, hides in a nearby high school. Guess which one? Whilst it's easy to mock this, and I did, not but a minute ago, this is actually masterful plotting. Not only are all the elements introduced separately, linked only by Peter Parker, this single linking element doesn't even know that he is the link. This is a beautiful way of demonstrating the slender line between Peter's two lives, and how easily they can be crossed with devastating results. A finer example of the need and power of the secret identity, I can't imagine. There's even a great scene where Peter, punished for daydreaming class, sees the janitor's new king-size vacuum cleaner, brilliantly setting up the ending. Peter pays no attention to it in the first instant, but compare this easy and simple way that this sets up the ending in comparison to the insipid retread of this scene in the Chapter 1 miniseries in the early 1990s. Lee and Ditko knew what they were doing. Now, I'm not saying that this is Byzantine by any means, and as I've alluded to, it's a startling coincidence that Sandman would end up in this school 
in this borough. But everything is being set up in such a way that the reader just goes with it. There are no convenient outs or dare et machinas later on. There is a wonderful woe is me Peter moment in the janitor's closet when Peter muses that the janitor clearly has no problems in the world. After all, only Peter Parker has difficulties. Lee again nailing the heightened reality that he's been a teenager. Sandman, in another remarkable coincidence, but one that totally works for the drama, has burst into Peter's class and demands that Principal Davis gives him a diploma because he never finished high school. Davis impresses the class by standing up to Sandman, stating that one has to earn a diploma. They aren't given away. He even holds himself in front of Sandman to protect his class, a nice heroic touch. Of course, Peter isn't in class. He's off on janitor duty. Again, a great way of avoiding the old how-do-I-get-away-and-change cliché. Spider-Man enters in a stunning Steve Ditko panel, catching Sandman unawares and knocking him clear across the room. From then on, it's a wonderfully choreographed Ditko fight scene with some fascinating imagery as Ditko goes to town on the visuals. Spider-Man has his arm trapped through Sandman's chest. He shatters Sandman's head against a staircase, splitting his head. And Ditko really lets himself loose in depicting Sandman's powers, a fine example of comics being a visual treat in a way that TV and movies just couldn't afford at that time. Spider-Man, realising he is again punching outside of his weight class, relies on his brains. He lures Spider-Man into the janitor's closet and, using the industrial vacuum he saw earlier, sucks Sandman up into it. I suppose we could make something of the fact that he lures him into the closet and then sucks him, but we won't go there. This being a Marvel comic, though, the end of the fight isn't the end of the issue. Deciding he needs pictures to sell, Spider-Man then fakes a confrontation using a bucket of sand in the janitor's closet that's used for fires. He even says to himself that this isn't unethical because it really happened a few moments ago. It's amazing how you can justify things, isn't it? This little plot thread would be followed up on many years later. Jonah then arrives to report the story, the Daily Bugle apparently not in possession of any other writers, and he demands Spider-Man be captured with Sandman. The police are pretty cool here, ignoring Jonah and basically telling him where to stick it. Jonah has a nice moment with Peter, taking his roll of film off him and paying him in cash there and then, minus the fee of developing the film, obviously. Everything seems like it's coming at roses for Peter as this leaves him free to date Liz. Liz is no longer interested, though. The class believe Peter spent the time that Sandman was stomping around school hiding, in no small part due to Flash, and Flash's taunts finally get to Peter, who loses his temper and prepares to belt him. This was a major moment for the series. Only four issues in and we're seeing some more development as Peter refuses to just stand by any longer, only pulling back when he realises that he could literally not flash his head off. I do wonder exactly what the class thought Peter could do, though. Hiding from a rampaging supervillain seems perfectly acceptable behaviour to me. The ending has Peter strolling home alone, listening to everybody discuss what a neurotic nut Spider-Man must be, and it culminates in a shadowy and moody panel of Peter wondering if they are right. Is he an attention seeker with no real altruistic intent? Despite the delicious final panel, this ending strives too hard for pathos and doesn't work organically. Everything else in the story has been going Peter's way mostly. He's made some cash, beat the Sandman, and Liz has thawed a little. Sure, he nearly belted Flash, but he can be forgiven this momentary lapse. This felt like the ending should have been a little more upbeat. Sure, Peter didn't get the girl, but the day wasn't a total wash. The ending, therefore, feels a tad tacked on. 
Still, with this issue, The Amazing Spider-Man fulfills its potential, taking the elements that have worked from the first few issues and dropping those that didn't, Lee and Ditko having successfully distilled the formula of what would make Spider-Man different. Whilst the newspaper angle was similar to Superman and the alien invasion stuff was familiar territory, with this issue the creative team hit upon the essence of a great Spider-Man story. There's a pretty awesome and challenging villain who can provide a visually appealing battle for Ditko to draw. The plot holds up, with a few exceptions, and we start to blend perfectly the different facets of Peter's life. The burden of the secret, the high school milieu, the superheroics, and his part-time gig at the Bugle, and tell a coherent story. Even the ending is quintessential Spider-Man, even if it's not as successful as later attempts to mimic this would be. With issue 4, Amazing Spider-Man knows what it is and what it wants to be. But more importantly, it knows what it isn't. Sadly, this upward progression is hurt in the omnibus presentation by the inclusion here of Strange Tales Annual Number 2. Strange Tales was a Human Torch-led anthology book, and if you listen to the Fantasticast, a show I co-host with Stephen Lacey, you'll know that the strangest thing about Strange Tales was how it passed quality control. Often silly beyond all reason, this theme continues in this annual, a by-the-numbers story of art theft and mistaken identity. A mysterious figure named The Fox is robbing art galleries, and a cobweb left at the scene leads the police to believe Spider-Man is the culprit. That's a tad flimsy as far as evidence goes, but it's not the flimsiest part of the issue's tissue-paper-thin plot, which then has Spider-Man turn to noted art lover, the Human Torch, for help. The Torch dutifully supplies said help, but only after they fight for a bit. A fight caused not by misunderstanding, but by the Torch's stubborn refusal to listen. This fight takes up ten pages as we have to pad this drivel out to meet its page count. It's hard to understand what went wrong here. Stanley wrote it, Steve Ditko inked over Jack Kirby's pencils, but it's like this creative team had never so much seen a Spider-Man comic, let alone chronicled his adventures. The Human Torch is as charisma-free as he ever was in this comic, so there's not a lot to get wrong there, but Spider-Man is off somehow. He does use some science to get the better of the torch, but other elements, like his costume, his build, which is far too stocky, and his use of his web shooters are all wrong. There are also little continuity niggles, the presence of Live magazine instead of Now, or the Daily Chronicle instead of the Daily Bugle, that make this seem like it's not a part of the Marvel Universe. Kirby was one of those brilliant artists who just never got the hang of Spider-Man, but Ditko doesn't seem to alter Kirby's art to make it fit. There are panels where it looks like Ditko made the costume look more on model, but the whole film just feels that little bit off, and it's fair to say that this is neither artist's best work. It's not dynamic enough for Kirby, and the setting is far too sunny days and palm trees for Ditko, taking away from his strengths. It reads like a bland 1950s team-up, what with the torch being all pally with the police, and the art thief subplot and the Marvel-isms, the smart-ass dialogue, the misunderstanding leading to a fight leading to a team-up, are dull and uninspired. Best left ignored, the inclusion of this in the omnibus is presumably only for completeness's sake. Over in Fantastic Four Annual Number 1, Spider-Man meets the Human Torch, along with the rest of the FF again, in one of comics' first extended retcons that plays like an extended scene on a DVD. In reply to the countless requests to see the confrontation between Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four from Amazing Spider-Man Number 1 expanded in some way, Lee, Kirby and Ditko all team up to represent this titanic first meeting between them. I'll be honest, I don't actually see the point of taking two pages and expanding them to six without actually adding anything at all that's new in terms of character or plot. 
It's simply more of Spider-Man and the FF fighting. And if anything, it makes the Fantastic Four appear even dumber than in the original issue. Spider-Man can apparently electrify his webbing simply by plugging it into a wall socket. And he can force it to snake down a wall and across a room as if it were alive. Sue is more concerned with the mess and the greatest addition seems to be in the form of property damage. Still, Lee plays fur with the reader. He never alters any original dialogue or scenes. He simply extends them, padding out the narrative for longer, and it passes the time pleasantly enough. Along with Spidey Tackles the Torch, which we'll see print in Amazing Spider-Man issue 8, this was an off-reprinted story by Marvel UK, presumably because the brief page count made them adequate page fillers. The next issue of Amazing Spider-Man, issue 5 for those keeping score, is a sideways step. It's not that the story, marked for destruction by Doctor Doom, is bad by any means. It is, in fact, a lot of fun. It's just that this isn't as good as the last two issues of the title. Not that you'd know from the cover. This is your finish, Spider-Man. If the Fantastic Four themselves could not stop me, what hope have you? Asks the bad Doctor Doom. He stood before a big old 60s bank of computerised stuff, pushing levers and twiddling knobs whilst making Spider-Man jump around with a blast from his finger bangers. Spidey, for his part, is in big trouble. His web is snapping and he's falling onto what looks like an electrified plate. Ignoring that Ditko has erred in regards to how Spider-Man's legs meet his buttocks, it's another cover placed comfortably in the back of the net. The story is, however, this issue's weak point. Doctor Doom, kicking back and watching some TV one evening, witnesses a J. Jonah Jameson-sponsored show about Spider-Man entitled Is He Hero or a Menace? Given who sponsored the show, I guess you can imagine that this isn't going to be fair or balanced. Doom decides that Spider-Man would therefore be the perfect candidate for his latest game of Let's All Kill the Fantastic Four, and goes about recruiting our hero into the fold. There's a couple of moments of note in the opening. For a start, Peter is out bowling with his classmates, which kind of implies he's making headroom in his quest for acceptance. Granted, he ruined his own chances by speaking out against Spider-Man after the kids, who are watching Jameson's show on the telly box, rally around Flash, who is becoming quite the Spider-Booster. His logic also fails him here. He thinks, I mustn't say anything to make them suspect me. I'll talk against Spider-Man, like there was ever any danger that they were going to think that mild-mannered Peter Parker was Spider-Man. Still, he's there, and that shows that somebody must have invited him. Presumably Liz. So that's progress, of a kind. Another noteworthy event is provided by Doom. When we last saw everybody's favourite Slipknot fan, Doom was plummeting to his... Well, Doom, after a confrontation with the Fantastic Four. It takes some huge balls to have a character who is a guest star in this comic miraculously rise from the dead, a death that took place in another comic, and then never refer to this in the character's main comic book. But that's exactly what Lee did here, and it's as fine an example of the interconnected Marvel Universe as one can find in these early days. It's a big surprise, therefore, that Lee's own grasp of continuity fails him on the very next page. Spider-Man expresses surprise that somebody, in this case Doom, has found a way to contact him via his Spider-Sense, apparently completely forgetting that the Chameleon did the same thing back in issue 1. Spider-Man meets with Doom and is tempted by the offer of a team-up, if only to rub Jonah's face in it, but ultimately declines. Doom does not accept no for an answer, but after a brief skirmish, Spider-Man ends up a little worse for were when Doom destroys their meeting place rather than engage in a pointless battle. Doom has other plans in motion. 
Again, some really nice moments in this sequence. Lee overwrites a lot of the battle, having Doom provide an audio commentary on the art in a really unnatural way. But the battle itself is interesting, in that Doom doesn't actually beat Spider-Man. Spidey flees, sure, but it's to gain a moment's respite, and he has every intention of coming back and peeling Doom out of his armour. But Doom, being Doom, leaves, and rather coolly just blows the place up. Spider-Man is then blamed for the fire, because, well, why not? At the Bugle, we see more of the burgeoning romance between Peter and Betty, as, in some rather sweet and understated moments, they check each other out, and notice that there's an attraction there. Lee often went for sappy melodrama in his romances, relying too much on the love triangle, but he never really gets the credit he deserves for his handling of Betty and Peter, at least in his early issues. Doom then reverses the polarity of his track Spider-Man device and backtracks the signal to our hero. A really clever touch. However, at that moment, Flash Thompson has decided to play a trick on Peter. A trick that involves dressing up as Spider-Man. You can see where this is going, can't you, lovely listener? Of course, it is all as you imagine, and Flash is caught by Doctor Doom instead of Peter. This is almost a Frasier level of farce, but you know what? It works. Peter and Flash are separated by a fence when Doom's attack takes place, so the reader completely buys into it. Lee points to the absurdity of it all by having Doom wonder, what was Spider-Man doing just loitering around this abandoned piece of dirt in the daytime? Peter is wonderfully in character, being completely oblivious and too wrapped up in himself to notice this going on less than a foot away. I was so caught in the moment that only later I wondered why his Spider-Sense didn't tingle. Having accomplished phase one of his plan, or so he thinks, Doom then interrupts all the TV channels to announce that he has Spider-Man captive and that if the FF don't want a death on their conscience, they will turn themselves over to him one at a time. Peter's friends then contact Peter and tell him what's occurred. Before the reader can wonder why they did this or what they think Peter can do about it, Peter asks them the exact same thing, a clever example of Stan cutting off a potential plot problem. After all, Peter has to find out about this somehow. After the phone call, we get another glorious human moment from Peter. He grins like a madman and thinks, If I do nothing, flashes out of my hair for good. It's a wonderfully true moment of selfishness that really puts the audience on Peter's side. Sure, why should he rescue Flash? Flash is an asshole. It's only a brief thought before Peter dismisses it, but it's an absolute delight and a thought we would all have had. From here on in, the story kicks into the action, and it's all pretty serviceable stuff, with Spider-Man going up against Doom and holding his own, although, crucially, he never seems like he's going to actually win. Doom is always a step ahead of Spider-Man, and it's to Lee and Ditko's credit they don't dumb Doom down or make Spider-Man seem more capable than he is. However, the ending is botched. Doom quits and flees when the FF arrive, stating, No, I am not ready yet. But the entire plan revolved around the FF dropping by. Granted, the real Spider-Man showing up has thrown a monkey wrench in the proceedings, but his plan from the get-go has always been to have the Fantastic Four show up. As the consummate wheels-within-wheels master planner, surely Doom would have had a contingency. This moment gives the reader pause, and then we start to think about Doom's plan, coming to the conclusion that it was flawed to begin with. Why go after Spider-Man at all? Why not capture any public figure, or even an innocent civilian? The outcome would have been the same. Demand that the FF show up, or they have a death on their hands. Instead, what we have here is a villain leaving simply because the page count dictates that it's time for him to leave. And that's a disappointment, given how decent the plotting has been so far. 
Issue 5, though, is still a romp, and entertaining largely for the Peter Parker material, but it does show how Marvel manages to shine. When the characters are agreeable and fun, the reader has a good time, even when the plot is less than stellar, and such it is with this issue. An enjoyable and solid read ultimately let down by its ending, and the feeling that Doctor Doom just isn't a good fit for Spider-Man. As of the next issue, Amazing Spider-Man would move from bi-monthly to monthly due to, it says on the letters page, reader demand. The cover to Amazing Spider-Man issue 6 looks like Spider-Man is falling headfirst down a mineshaft, or a well, as the lizard leaps after him. More Ditko lunacy in the mighty Marvel manner. This is highlighted by the really rather brilliant colour scheme, using purples and greens to great effect. There's also a grayscale tone to the entire cover, implying that we are quite far down, where light isn't quite reaching the characters. Another offbeat story greets us as we turn the page. In this adventure, Lee and Ditko take Spider-Man as far from the comfortable environs of New York as it is possible to get, dropping him well out of his comfort zone in the middle of the Florida Everglades. Face-to-face with the Lizard gives Spider-Man another important addition to his rogues gallery, although perhaps not one with the continuous story potential of, say, the Vulture or Doctor Octopus. This is evident in the storyline itself, which clearly wraps the story up, leaving very little in the way of loose ends for further extrapolation. The Splash boasts of being a 21-page Spider-Man super epic, and we are quickly introduced to the walking, talking, bipedal lizard man that is terrorising the Florida Everglades. The opening kind of undercuts the ending of the story, but we'll get to that later. The Daily Bugle, with nothing else to do to fill its column inches, dares Spider-Man to tackle this lizard creature. But when Peter asks Jonah Jameson to fund such a trip, Jonah declines, stating that Lizard is probably just a hoax, despite the many eyewitnesses in the first four panels. Still, Spider-Man succeeds where Peter fails, conning Jonah into sending Peter when he, Spider-Man, drops by to tell Jonah that he will answer the challenge Jonah has laid down. This is actually a very funny opening to the story, as well as having the delicious irony of Jonah paying Spider-Man to go to Florida. We also see Spider-Man thwart a robbery at the National History Museum, where he was brushing up on his reptile knowledge. Also present at the National History Museum were Flash and Liz, and whilst Flash is as big a meathead as ever, Liz is here to learn. This plays neatly into the thawing Liz does towards Peter, and why she suddenly develops an interest in him. Liz is clearly the pretty girl who is popular and is with the football hero because that's what's expected of her, but she's actually quite studious and intelligent. She will, as she matures, start to see there is more to Peter than meets the eye and start to respect his intelligence. It's a really subtle piece of characterisation in a medium that is primarily known for over-the-top histrionics. Peter, being at the Natural History Museum, also shows that he's someone who does his homework, which, granted, is something we already knew, but it's nice to see it again, especially when we also see that he learns that there is a noted reptile expert, Kurt Connors, who lives near the lizard sightings, and Peter makes a mental note to contact him for help. Jonah then throws a spanner in the works by insisting on journeying to Florida with Peter. But, upon their arrival, Peter manages to steal away, stating he needs film and such for his camera. Again, some great characterisation as Jonah sulks that this is all something Peter should have done when he wasn't on the company dime. Sneaking away allows Peter to don the Spider-Man togs and have a cheeky peek around the various locations where the lizard has been spotted, and this leads to their first confrontation. 
Needless to say, as with all first confrontation, Spider-Man's overconfidence leads to a stalemate. But in the battle, he spots the home of the Connors and learns from the woman in the that Connors is the lizard and she is his wife. This was a nice surprise. Prior to this, this is the kind of story twist that would have been set for the end, but by revealing it here, we not only undercut a quite obvious turn, but Lee and Ditko also conjure up a measure of sympathy for Connors, as we quickly learn he's married, has a small son, and was attempting to create a serum that would enable man to grow extra limb, just like some breeds of reptiles do in real life. That there's a scientific basis to the fiction also adds weight to the fiction. Of course, this being fiction, it also goes horribly wrong, allowing Ditko to explore the man-against-nature theme again. Marvel scientists have apparently never heard of testing their theories out, and Connors ingests his serum himself, as he is lacking an arm. He grows a new appendage, but continues to mutate, becoming a man-sized lizard. One nice touch is that his intelligence fades away slowly, frustrating Dr. Connors, and he flees to save his family. Spider-Man, having heard the story, uses his brains once again to whip up a serum that will cure Connors. This development is more believable here than in previous issues, as here Spider-Man has Connors' notes to work from, simply extrapolating from those to create an antidote. This in no way takes away from Spider-Man's accomplishments, but it gives a good in-story reason for how he's able to do this so quickly. Spider-Man tracks the lizard to an abandoned Spanish fort, again a nice touch that plants the fantasy in reality, where, with the reptile side completely dominant, the lizard plans to use other reptiles that he can apparently control to take over the world. Whilst this adds a level of heightened drama to the story, it's not something I felt was necessary, as Spider-Man trying to save his own skin whilst also desperately trying to save his adversary was more than enough. Still, it's action all the way from that point on, the most sympathetic adversary making a change from the norm, and it all culminates with Spider-Man curing Connors and saving the day. Spider-Man and the Connors clan decide, therefore, to keep this all a secret, contradicting the opening somewhat where the lizard was witnessed by what looked like a town full of people. Still, it's entirely possible that Florida will just dine off this, like Loch Ness does with their own monster, and Connors destroys all his notes, adding finality to the story. There are a number of villains that are really only good as one-shots, and the Lizard is one of them, and it's likely Lee and Ditko realise this. There's a definite ending to Kurt Connors' story, and this is as it should be. The Lizard should have been left alone. As before, though, the story has an epilogue. Peter convinces Jonah that the lizard isn't real, and back at home we find that Liz is now infatuated with Spider-Man after the National History Museum rescue, giving another level of irony that the creative at this type so loved. Issue 6 is another wonderful story. Whilst it does use the formulaic structure of the other stories, the first encounter leading to defeat and or stalemate, and then a conclusion emphasising Peter's intelligence, setting this in Florida rather than New York and the sympathetic nature of the villain gives us a different feel to the Vulture and Doc Ock tales. However, speaking of the Vulture, issue 7 of Amazing Spider-Man brings about a return engagement for our flying felon. This is actually another slight tale, despite boasting the usual magnificent cover and splash page we have come to associate with the book. The Vulture has been a model prisoner, and as in all such tales, has been given access to the machine shop, where he has been made a trustee. Obviously, he's simply biding his time and making a rudimentary version of his flying harness so he can escape, but this time he's made some modifications. I remember loving this issue as a kid, and it holds up as an entertaining story today, despite it following the same formula Lee and Ditko have now established to the letter. 
The modifications that the vulture has made are to render Spider-Man's inverter useless, and thus this leads us to the first confrontation, which, predictably, Spider-Man loses. This time, though, he is quite severely hurt, and we see that from the outset the vulture is one of Spider-Man's more ruthless adversaries. The opening is interesting in that we see Peter cut school, albeit with permission, to go and hunt the vulture, and Ditko excels at the aerial fight scenes. My personal favourite panel is when Spider-Man, rather cockily, holds up the inverter whilst taking a photo for the vulture to look at, and says, cheese, only for the vulture to knock his overconfident arse to the ground. Spider-Man then falls from considerable distance and lands on his shoulder, spraining it significantly. These scenes are witnessed by police and bystanders, and it's quite hysterical how little they seem to occur that Spider-Man has seemingly died. Whoever he was, he'll be missed, states a cop portentously, making no move whatsoever to get to Spider-Man and see if he's okay. It's like, oh, damn, he just killed Spider-Man and his dead body's up there on that roof. Ah, well, the pigeons can eat him. Interestingly, we still don't learn the Vulture's real name, and even odder, he only refers to himself as the Vulture. We will discover his real name in stages, his first name being revealed in Amazing Spider-Man issue 224 in 1982, and his last name being revealed in Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, issue number 44 in 1980. With Spider-Man out of the way, the Vulture goes back to his old silo and plots further crimes. Peter, meanwhile, has to explain to Aunt May how he hurt his arm, and is placed in a sling by Doc Bromwell. It's a nice touch that Peter buried his lie to Aunt May in a truth. He was playing volleyball earlier with Flash, even if that's not where he received the injury. Ditko also draws Peter here and in the next scenes at school with unkempt hair, and it's nice to see Peter has some other clothes than that yellow vest top. With the sling on, Peter wears a rather stylish black turtleneck, which gives him a very different look. Maybe this change in sartorial style was what led Betty Brandt to start flirting with him at the Daily Bugle. From this point on, the issue becomes an out-and-out comedy, with Peter making some genuinely funny gags to Betty, which go a long way towards wooing her over. The plots also dovetail nicely as the vulture decides to make a play for Jonah's payroll, just as Peter visits for a check. Jonah has had a severe change of heart since the last time Peter brought him vulture pictures. Here he states that everybody now has pictures of him, and he will only pay Peter $12 for the images. Imagine his surprise when this conversation is interrupted by the vulture himself, and then Spider-Man makes the scene. Farcical moments then occur as Spider-Man and the vulture chase each other through the newsroom, sending papers scattering and employees running for cover. This is really fast-paced stuff, and there's a light-hearted fun to the proceedings, evident in the playfulness of the action and the dialogue, which is some of Lee's funniest to this point. Spider-Man is now fully formed, his wise-cracking nature is in place, and even his sprained shoulder doesn't cause him undue worry. The action then spills outside, and the vulture crows about his upcoming victory as they fly high into the sky. However, Spider-Man quickly turns the tables, webbing the vulture's arm to his leg so that he can't fly properly, and in a comical highlight, the vulture panics, meaning Spider-Man ends up having to save them both, something Spidey absolutely delights in. He even finds time to web up Jonah's mouth. The issue concludes with Peter and Betty snuggling up together under a desk, as the Bugle offices try to pull themselves back together, and Jonah flaps around, unable to speak. It's quite a romantic ending. There are no deep themes to this issue, no subtext or thematic message. What there is, is fun in abundance. Whilst the formula is adhered to, Peter himself is the true star of the story. 
I think this issue should be given to a lot of the current writers and editors of Marvel Comics as an example of classic Spider-Man. Yes, he suffers a defeat here, and yes, Peter is injured and taunted by his classmates, but he is at no point a loser or a sad sack. He defeats the Vulture, gets his own back on Jonah Jameson, and gets the girl. He's positive in his outlook, quite the charmer when not pigeonholed by his contemporaries, and keeps his head when all around are losing those. In short, in this issue, Peter has a good day. There's no sad saccharine, no juvenile behaviour from an arrested 20-something, and no high concepts. The Vulture comes back and Spider-Man beats him. That's it. And you know what? It's fantastic stuff. And it just gets better and better with the next issue, a long-time favourite of mine. And one that still has a prescient theme today. The cover to Amazing Spider-Man 8 is odd, though. The central image of Spider-Man has become a much-used piece of clip art, and it cannot be faulted on the art alone. The shading, colouring and look of the piece are great. However, Spider-Man isn't really doing anything particularly Spider-Man-esque. He's not clinging to a wall or hanging from a web or even firing off his web shooters. He's simply running at the reader. The Human Torch flies behind him, highlighting yet another appearance by the Torch, who is practically a co-star at this point. In circles to the right of the cover, there are highlights of the story within. Part of this issue's heralded tribute to Teenager's Pledge. There are clips of Peter and Flash in the boxing ring and something called The Living Brain. As I say, it's an odd cover that somehow, despite the disparate elements, or maybe because of them, works well. For the first time since issue 2, this comic has two stories, and the Torch, despite his prominent position on the cover, is only in the second shorter tale, although maybe they're making up for his lack of cover appearance on issue 3. The first story, The Terrible Threat of the Living Brain, has a splash page that, following with tradition, is much better than the cover. A bizarre-looking robotic creature, similar in appearance to Robbie the Robot from Forbidden Planet, advances upon a group of terrified teens, its arms whirling like a mace as Spider-Man leaps upon him, trying desperately to stop this mechanical monster. Far more descriptive of the issue than the cover, this is a stunning image and wonderfully rendered by Ditko. The story opens in school where the ICM computer company has arrived with the latest in scientific advances, an almost human-like robot nicknamed the Living Brain. I don't know what ICM think that humans look like, but this monstrosity bears little resemblance to humanity. Yes, it may be vaguely anthropomorphic in that it has a face, arms and legs, but its design is very similar to the robots of the science fiction pulps, with a dash of Lost in Space thrown in, complete with dials and toggle switches. Given that this issue predates Lost in Space, maybe the robot is a descendant of the living brain. Apparently, ICM are touring the country with this thing to promote its advances. The most interesting part of the first page, other than the actual design of the living brain, is that Peter has finally had enough of Flash's shit after yet another bullying session ends with Flash destroying Peter's glasses. As a rule, I'm going to refrain from mentioning overmuch the events of the future, but this bit is worth mentioning. In this comic, Peter states that he doesn't even need the glasses, which begs the question why he was wearing them. He doesn't strike me as one of those hipster types who wears fake specs, especially given that Peter is an outcast and a nerd anyway. Why draw attention to himself in that way? Later retcons, though, have established that the spider bite slowly fixed Peter's short-sightedness, leading to him not needing the specs anymore. While this isn't mentioned here, it's a pretty decent guess as to what happened, and it ties in with the idea that the powers developed and changed as Peter's body got used to them. However, because it seems that Lee and Ditko didn't really plan this, we never get a follow-up. 
It would have been nice to see Peter explain to Aunt May what happened to his glasses and that he doesn't need them anymore. Kurt Busiek would have May take Peter to the optician in an issue of Untold Tales of Spider-Man. Anyway, Peter gives Flash as good as he gets, and despite Liz trying to calm them both down, they agree to finally have it out after school. This is an excellent scene. Peter's increase in confidence has been a slow burn, as it would be, but he's not like Superman. He never pretended to be the weak butt of people's jokes. That's what he was. The spider bite has increased his confidence to the point where Liz has started to see something else in Peter that wasn't there previously, and he's now comfortable enough to openly flirt with slightly older women like Betty Brand. So it makes total sense that Peter would start to openly resent Flash in his constant belittling. After this bickering, the doctor from ICM, a man named Petty, explains the living brain and its capabilities, and he challenges the kids to come up with a question it can't answer. Very quickly, the kids decide to ask it who is Spider-Man, a question that chills Peter to the marrow. Peter is picked to program the machine and decipher its answer, which conveniently allows him time to think about what to do. Despite the intelligence that went into the living brain, though, ICM apparently don't screen their employees, as upon learning what the brain can do, the men that are helping Dr. Petty decide to steal it. Why they've only just realised what the brain can do, given that we've established that they are on a tour of the country, is never explained. I do also adore the low level the thieves are operating on. One of the most sophisticated pieces of machinery ever devised by man, and all they can think of is, it can figure out horse races. Peter starts sweating over the idea that the living brain may, with enough information, be able to suss out his secret. And sure enough, the kids start throwing out facts about our hero that do make it credible that the brain could somehow pull this off, even though it's completely illogical to assume the brain has any idea who Peter Parker is. Add to this that this is the second time Spider-Man will have been seen at Midtown High, and one can see that Peter isn't terribly careful with the secret identity. Granted, there are no mobile phones in 1963, no CCTV or home cameras, but probably the only information the brain would lack is that Peter takes all those Spider-Man photos, something that still isn't common knowledge. Ditko proves himself to be the consummate storyteller here, milking every ounce of tension out of Peter feeding the data into the brain and then focusing on his fears, should the result be that Peter is Spider-Man. Ditko takes it right to the end of the page where the reader is forced to turn to learn that Peter will have to take it home and decode it. There's then a hilarious scene where Flash tries to grab the paper off Peter, stating that Peter is too weak to take care of something this valuable. The two then fight over it with another stunning panel where Ditko clearly draws Peter holding Flash off at arm's length as Flash struggles against it. It's a subtle point, but it is there. Professor Warren, fed up with Peter and Flash, suggests that they settle this once and for all after school in the boxing ring. Now, this may be my delicate 21st century sensibilities here, but I don't really think that the deck is stacked in Peter's favour in a boxing match. Does Professor Warren secretly hate Peter? Why did he not challenge him to a spelling bee? Clearly that would have been better for Peter. Nevertheless, the fight takes place, and in it some of the best character comedy so far. Peter clobbers Flash, giving us some wonderfully over-the-top panels of Flash's face after Peter punches him. And Ditko really sells that Flash is struggling with panels of his grimacing face and beads of sweat leaping off his brow. Peter, meantime, is calm and collected, never ruffled, and even allows himself a smile or two as he figures out how to knock Flash out without killing him. 
Whilst Lee does write some funny dialogue and manages to get in Peter's head, demonstrating that as much as Peter may be enjoying this turnabout, he's still concerned about hurting Flash, it's Ditko's sequential storytelling that is showcased here. A master of the form at the peak of his powers. Whilst all this is occurring, the two delivery men have moved in to steal the brain and had to knock Dr. Petty out to do so. This altercation leads them to accidentally jarring the supercomputer and it begins running amok, terrorising the staff and cohort. Why the school still has so many kids in it when we've established that this boxing match is taking place after school is never addressed, but maybe there's just lots of after school activity this day. Anyway, Peter is just about to end the charade when the living brain starts its rampage, and Flash, so distracted, turns his head just as Peter lamps him. Of course, the kids watching think Peter sucker-punched Flash, and Peter hasn't time to worry about it, as he dons his Spider-Man togs to help stop our automated friend after dragging Flash to the locker room. What follows is a mixture of comedy hijinks and deadly serious drama as the living brain threatens to kill our hero with whirling arms whilst also demonstrating that it can learn and think. However, as the fight becomes more deadly, it's shot through with humour. Spider-Man is crushed under a door by the living brain at one point, only to rise and then be crushed under the door again as the oblivious thieves run over him. It's almost Marx Brothers in its visual sight gaggery. Flash even takes the bad guys out when they trip over him fastening his shoelaces. However, none of the comedy takes the reader out of the drama, nor do the tonal switches jar. Lee and Ditko juggle the humour and the drama beautifully, with some of Lee's dialogue being genuinely amusing in places. He still does that thing where he describes what we're seeing in the art, but it's not as jarring here, as Spider-Man delivers a lot of it with incredulity that this computer is outthinking him. Ditko lets loose with the visuals, and whilst there isn't a lot of originality to the panel layouts, who cares when each panel is as jam-packed with action as this one? Spider-Man's fight with the living brain contains more action, drama, excitement and splendour than five modern-day Marvel books. Spider-Man manages to shut the brain down and save a number of school kids on the way, and all that remains is the wrap-up. Dr. Petty grasses up the crooks, Flash saves the day, and Peter, in a shrewd move, accuses Flash of being Spider-Man. To be fair, his logic is flawless. Flash wasn't around while Spider-Man fought the living brain. Flash did take out the thieves, and he tried to wrest the identity of Spider-Man the brain produced away from Peter. This is a great example of Peter's quick thinking, but also how well this otherwise throwaway story has been constructed. The other kids also get on in the act, accusing Flash of throwing the fight with Peter to allay suspicions. Flush with a successful day, after all, he got to knock Flash out on his arse, Peter strides home. The only bum note in the story is the idea that Peter is going to simply say he lost the paper with the ID on it. Surely someone as bright as Peter could have come up with something cleverer than that. Still ignoring this minor misstep, this is a great issue. Whilst it is in some ways quite throwaway, it still has interesting themes, and there's a bit of the Frankenstein parallel going on. But there's also more of the idea of machines replacing man, something that was a hot topic in the 60s. More importantly though, this issue is jolly good fun, as well as featuring some interesting character development for Peter. It's this issue where we start to really see that Spider-Man's confidence has bled over onto Peter, and that he really isn't scared of Flash anymore. This was seismic. It showed us that Marvel wasn't going to keep characters the same, and after we'd already established that Peter wasn't a bog-standard do-gooder, this adds layers to his character, and even his occasional moments of dickery just add to his overall characterization and likability. Which is fortunate, as the second story in this issue was Spider-Man being a real dick. 
Spidey decides to drop by the Human Torch's girlfriend Doris Evans just to show her what she's missing by not dating Spider-Man. What follows is five pages of Spider-Man and the Torch fighting, with the FF showing up at the end just as the Torch seems to be gaining the upper hand. It's not the best Spider-Man Torch team-up, and it's a bit of a retrograde step after the blossoming friendship in other stories, but at only six pages it doesn't overstay its welcome, and is, at least on that score, a more successful Lee Kirby Ditko team-up than Strange Tales Annual 2. So, how do these early issues, plus some additional exploits, fur? Are they, as I thought, well-planned? Well, in comparison, as I say, to strips like The Hulk or The Fantastic Four, it does seem like somebody, and again, probably Ditko, as he's the only element here not present in the gestation of the other characters, was giving some thought to how Spider-Man's powers and abilities work. But in terms of advancing the story, there's clear evidence Lee and Ditko were making it up as they went. So a little of column A, a little of column B. However, in terms of how quickly Lee and Ditko nailed who Spider-Man was and what the strip were about, there is no comparison. Spider-Man became fully formed from about issue 3, and then it was simply a case of refining the idea a little more. This is recognisably the Spider-Man of legend from issue 2 or so, and after that the creative team start firing on all cylinders. What's remarkable is that even after this great beginning, they would only get better. But that's for next time. With that inaugural episode, looking at Spider-Man's beginnings out of the way, next week, or next time, I should say, we don't do this weekly, do we? We will be looking at the introduction of Electro and the Enforcers, the return of Dr. Octopus, and Spider-Man's first encounters with Mysterio, the Green Goblin, and Craven the Hunter. We'll also be covering one of my all-time favourite Spider-Man stories, annual number one, The Sinister Six. But before we completely wrap up for the evening, uh, I do have a couple of emails. Gus Shaw emailed in, not about a show specifically, but more hoping that we could get some information out to people who could benefit. Uh, there's an independent publisher who is making audio versions of comic books for blind and visually impaired fans, such as Gus, at comicsempower.com. Right now, they've only got a couple of titles from New Worlds Comics, and obviously won't be able to offer titles from the major publishers without contracts and legal red tape. But they do have giant mechanoid fighters, which appeals to people who listen to this show, particularly Michael, my son, and Luke Giaconetti, obviously. So uh, Gus is just wanting to plug that for visually impaired people, this is out there, and it's probably worth checking out. So uh, we're all for that. We're, we're encouraging of such things. Jason Trenner emailed in with a palace of glittering delights catch-up, where he says he doesn't really have anything to say about Lois and Clark. Uh, he says that the Incredible Hulk take on the most dangerous game has parallels with the Marvel comic story of Vengeance, or... Is that is it called Vengeance? Vengeance Extreme? Something like that? I don't know. Um, that seems to be what it's called, but I, I, I'm not quite sure. On Spectacular Spider-Man, there's one thing that, that annoys me. Sony, whilst making that cartoon, not letting Spider-Man be in the superhero squad. I've never seen the Spectacular Spider-Man cartoon, but got hooked onto Superhero Squad when Cartoon Network was playing it heavily. It's a cartoon show I hope you cover on the palace, as it was really very good. Not meant to be taken seriously in the slightest, but funny and tragic. Spider-Man was not let in on the fun. Thank you for emailing in, Jason. Our next email is Michael Bailey. A palace email from work. Andy, 
Mikey Mike, be here writing to you on a Saturday morning while I'm supposed to be working, but you seem to like it when we act like work shy fops and write into your show, so this feels right. I finished up The Latest Palace and had some thoughts on it and the Lois and Clark episode you did. I wasn't going to mention the Lois and Clark show because I figure everyone else would have deluged you with comments, but apparently this wasn't the case. Tempest was one of the highlights of the series, and as far as original villains, he was certainly top of the heap. He was much better than the illegitimate son of Lex Luthor that sucks Superman and Lois into a virtual reality world where they have to fight Max Shrek's son from Batman Returns, because it was the 90s and cyber virtual reality crap was everywhere. I remember watching the original Tempest episode when it aired and was just floored at not only how funny it was, but how it managed to get to the heart of who this Clark Kent was. Sadly, the follow-ups are not as good. I will admit that I have not seen as much of the fourth season as I was working at the time and missed a bunch of episodes. I only have the box set because I got it for free and only made it through the first ten episodes when I tried to watch it. So I missed Tempest's return that season. I did see the character they called Deathstroke, which saddened me. So it looks like I was a double loser on that season. The third season episode was, well, I like the dynamic between all the Clark and Lois and the plot itself was fine. But I remember being annoyed at the guns are bad, okay, feeling. Not that I think everyone should be packing heat and those dirty liberal pinko hippies were just being silly with that part of the episode. Because while I believe having a weapon for self-defense is just fine and dandy, dandy and fine, I'm against someone beating me over the head with their political agenda. Other than that, and Lana being a shrew, it was fine. Please cover more Lois and Clark. I like hearing you talk about it. I've considered doing more Lois and Clark. I want to do the pilot. I like the pilot to Lois and Clark. Oh, all the green, green glow of home. Because I love that one. It's my favourite episode of the show. Uh, Continuing, switching gears to your Hulk talk. Well, you've done it again, sir. For years, I was not a fan of this episode. To be fair, I'd only seen it once or twice in syndication, but for whatever reason, this is one of the episodes I didn't like as a kid. You've really changed my mind, from your research into the actors involved, to your deft use of clips from the episode, to your insights into why this was one of the greatest episodes of the series. Well, you've won me over. I feel a rewatch of the entire show coming on soon. Seriously, thank you for this episode. It was fantastic. If only we had the time to do a proper Hulk podcast. Well, that's it for now. I'll go and get some work done. I will talk to you soon. Cheers, mate. Mikey Mike B. And Michael is, of course, home... A uh, host, sorry, not home. Uh, of Views from the Long Box, a Superman podcast. No, it's not. It's from Crisis to Crisis. That is this. I'm reading two lines at once. I'll do that again. He's the host of Views from the Long Box and Bailey's Batman co- podcast, co-host of From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, and co-host of Tales of the Justice Society of America, and co-host of Radio KAL Live. I would imagine that that keeps him busy. Thank you for emailing in, Michael. It's always nice to hear from Michael. Especially when we talk Superman. That's always fun. Uh, a couple of emails about the um, the movie soundtrack episode. Gene Hendricks emailed in, saying, Let me say that if it's truly your last episode of theme music, then you went out on a high note. I'm sorry, my pun filter must have turned off for a second, though. The only one I would have added would be O Fortuna, as used in Excalibur. However, since that's an operatic piece and not original to the movie, I can see why you would not have chosen it. As for the rest, very well done. Each of the choices you had were unique, and at least for the movies that have seen, are inexorably linked to the visuals. Much like the William Tell Overture will always conjure up image of a masked man on a white horse, I can't help but picture Indiana Jones, Darth Vader, or Yul Brynner when I hear their themes played. Gene. And, uh, to, well, thanks, Gene. I, I, again, the music ones are always fun to put together and uh, hopefully to listen to. Gene is the host of the Hammer Strikes series of podcasts, which include the Quantum Cast, Anime Freaks, and he does blogs as well at hammerstrikes.blogspot.com. And 
Coming up soon, I have a guest appearance on one of Gene's shows, so look out for that, because that, that, uh, that was a lot of fun to record. Chris Franklin also emailed in about the movie themes episode. Ah, another soundtrack to another work day. I could get used to this. Some definite surprises, amongst those that have to be, though, given your comics route. I've never picked up the soundtrack to Superman Returns, but you and Michael Bailey have made good use of it on many of your podcasts. I think I must cave in. I have the ultimate version of the 78 movie soundtrack, but the more the merrier, especially when it pertains to my favourite film score and to my favourite film, period. Speaking of Michael Bailey, I always get a charge at the end of Bailey's Batman podcast when he plays Elfman's finale from the 89 Batman film. I'll be honest, it still gives me goosebumps, just like it did in the theatre back when I was 14. In total agreement on the excellent Captain America the First Avenger score, you can hear the cap thing hinted at very briefly when Steve is jogging a Winter Soldier, but that's it. Despite my love of that film, that was a misstep. You can hear hints of it in both Avengers soundtracks as well. My favourite version of the theme is the one that ran over the end credits scene in the First Avenger. Sadly, it's not on the official soundtrack, but Disney did release it on an album of musical rarities. I'm also glad you played 007. I looked into a copy of an early Bond soundtrack compilation released on vinyl around the time of Goldfinger, and I listened to it and that track in particular quite a bit. Fantastic stuff. I'm not as down on the new Trek films as some, but I admit I love the new theme, and when they blend the Courage theme and this one, that's just gravy. Look forward to the Trek music episode. I can hum hours of incidental Trek music in my head. Chris Franklin, who along with his wife Cindy, hosts Supermates. And see, I only threw that as a throwaway gag, and now you're going to make me do it, aren't you? Now that I've said it, I'm going to have to do that episode about incidental Star Trek music. All right, well, maybe after we've, we've finished with Lee Ditko. Uh, and Luke Giaconetti also emailed in about the music episode. Come over here and listen to this movie. Same joke, recycled, just like Hollywood. Andy, just wanted to write and let you know how much I dug your music from the music Music from the music? Music from the movies episode of Palace. My father was big into movie soundtracks too, so when I was a kid, car rides with my dad were often accompanied by soundtrack albums, including lots of Williams, Elfman and the like, so naturally I'm big on soundtracks as well. Very glad to hear you name-check Elfman's music for a darkened theatre, which is an album I've listened to at least a hundred times between my father playing it and me playing it on my own. The score to Pee-wee's Big Adventure is forever emblazoned on my mind thanks to this album leading off with it, including the wonderfully madcap piece Breakfast Machine, before transitioning into the more serious tunes from Batman, Nightbreed, Dick Tracy and Darkman. Of course, the main title for Beetlejuice is in there too, and we get one of my personal favourites, Back to School. A great album from start to finish, for sure. Alan Silvestri is a name which does not get banded about much by anyone other than soundtrack buffs, at least until his Marvel work, but his work is usually pretty rocking. I always have a soft spot for his scores to Predator and Predator 2, plus later work such as his Bernhard Cowan meets Castlevania score for Band Helsing, which is a personal favourite and perennial driving music album. One thing I like with Sylvester is he's not afraid of throwing in the occasional oddball instrument. Van Helsing uses acoustic guitar in a few cuts, all of which involve travel, which give them a very adventurous feel. By the same token, I always liked the bit John Williams did for the Urkar chase on Coruscant in Attack of the Clones, which also features electric guitar. I'm just going to pause a minute to interject and say I absolutely love the score to Predator. So, yeah, total agreement with that. 
Jerry Goldsmith continues, Lucas, to me most closely associated with his 80s and 90s score, including Gremlins, Rambo and B-movies like Warlock, Inner Space and Leviathan. It was only later I discovered some of his earlier work, like Alien and especially Star Trek The Motion Picture, becoming a big fan of the motion picture when I was in sixth grade. His son Joel was also a composer, although more for TV and video games than films. He did do one favourite of mine, Cull the Conqueror, a hard rock twin sword and sorcery score. Another genre composer to throw into the mix is Basil Polduris, who scored to Conan the Barbarian and Robocop, are pretty much the stuff of legend in my mind. Both are perfectly matched to the subject matter and instantly recognisable to genre fans. Going to interject again, Conan almost made it. The theme to Conan almost made the list. Lou continues, I don't have much to say about John Williams, because really, what can I say about John Williams? I will share a story, though. Whilst a lot of folks tell of being spellbound in a theatre by the rising tones of his score to Superman, Star Wars, or Indiana Jones, my being born in 1980, precludes a lot of those memories for me. Instead, the moment which sticks in my mind as far as William's score fueling the sense of wonder was right before my 13th birthday, in the movie theatre at the Jefferson Valley Mall, when the score crescendos in Jurassic Park as Doctors Grant and Sadler stir at the Brachiosaurus. That fanfare still gets me. It's beautiful and wondrous and transports me through time to that theatre seat. One trick which I still love down at Universal Studios Island Adventure is that when you walk through the gate, Jurassic Park score pipes through. One last comment. In Japanese science fiction, the film composer is Akira Ifukube. He is best known in this country for his scores to the Toho Monster series, including classic scores to Godzilla, Rodan, King Kong vs. Godzilla, Mothra vs. Godzilla, and so forth. But he also did scores to period samurai drama, The Tale of Zatochi, The Story of Osaka Castle, Historical Fantasy, The Birth of Japan, The Little Prince and the Eight-Headed Dragon, Modern Drama, The Quiet Duel and Dobu, Straight Science Fiction, Latitude Zero, Battle in Outer Space, and War Films. I won't ask you to read these, and they're mostly untranslated. So much like it is always a treat to see a score by Williams or Elfman or Goldsmith or Silvestre, it is equally a treat for fans to see a film scored by Ifukube. Thanks for a great episode and looking forward to whatever comes next. Bring on Lee Ditko, Spider-Man. Well, you've just heard Lee Ditko, Spider-Man, so you'll have to email in and let me know what you think. That about wraps it up this week. A little bit longer. Okay, a lot longer than usual. But uh, this is probably going to end up being five parts rather than the four I thought it was if covering eight issues has been two hours. But uh, we'll see how it goes. We'll see what happens. Uh, as usual, I can be emailed on the old Hey Kids comics at virginmedia.com email address. And if you want to buy something from Amazon, go and click on the Amazon link on the Two True Freaks page on twotruefreaks.com because we get a kickback which keeps all the lights on and pays for the site hosting and all of that stuff. So that's nice. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.